This is our first Sunday in the new year. It means it is also a communion Sunday. And so I just wanted to reiterate a, a few minor changes to the way we're, we're coming to the Lord's table. And just so that they're not surprises when we get to them a little later in the service. Uh, this morning, as we did last month, we're going to serve uh, from the Lord's table by inviting you to come forward. So after uh, the bread and the cup are blessed, we'll have uh, two sets of deacons at either side of the sanctuary here to serve you. Um, and at that time, after, uh, after we've prayed and invited you forward, uh, then you can come to either side. We ask that you come, if you're on the outsides, come around the outside. If you're in the middle, everyone come up these, uh, this center aisle and then choose one side to be served from. Uh, you can tear off a piece of the bread, dip it into the cup, and then take uh, the elements right then when you receive them. And then you can go back the outside aisles to your seats. Also, one other uh, minor change this, this month, instead of having both an offertory and a final congregational hymn, those two are, are being brought together in, into one song. So when we take the offering following the Lord's Supper, uh, we'll be inviting you to sing. That will be our final congregational hymn, but we'll also be going out with uh, the offering plates. And following those plates in the same offering collection will be uh, the deacon's collection, the little baskets, uh, to support um, that fund to care for the needs of those in our community. So the, the offertory will, will happen together um, there at the very end of the service. As we start this new year, we're back in the book of Ephesians, and we're picking up in chapter 4, where we left off right before Advent uh, at the end of November. So if you want to go ahead and and find your Bible uh, or find a a Bible in your pew and mark that spot, we'll be opening to that passage in just a moment. Throughout the year, no matter whether it's winter or summer or spring or fall, one of my favorite things to do is to to take walks in the woods behind our house. There's something about the the space and the quiet of the forest that helps me to think more clearly, it helps me to pray more readily, and it just brings me joy. It's It's a place I am grateful for. And thankfully, in Vermont, there's no shortage of that resource, right? We have trees and forests everywhere. But something I I read a few months back made me see my time in the forest or the forest around me in a slightly different light. Even though I typically go into the woods to experience a kind of solitude and, and quiet, Unbeknownst to me, there is this incredible and invisible network of communication happening in the forest. And most of it's happening actually beneath the ground, in the roots of all those trees. I want to play for you a a quick clip from the BBC News Service, talking about some of the new research they've, they've discovered in the way that forests communicate with one another. Trees may look like solitary individuals, but the ground beneath our feet tells a different story. Trees are secretly talking, trading and waging war on one another. They do this using a network of fungi that grow around and inside their roots. 
The fungi provide the trees with nutrients and, in return, they receive sugars. But scientists have found this connection runs far deeper than first thought. By plugging into the fungal network, trees can share resources with each other. The system has been nicknamed the Wood Wide Web. It's thought that older trees, fondly known as mother trees, use this fungal network to supply shaded seedlings with sugars, giving them a better chance of survival. Those trees that are sick or dying may dump their resources into the network, which might then be used by healthier neighbours. Plants also use fungi to send messages to one another. If they're attacked, they can release chemical signals through their roots, which can warn their neighbours to raise their defences. But like our internet, the wood wide web has its dark side too. Some orchids hack the system to steal resources from nearby trees. And other species, like the black walnut, spread toxic chemicals through the network to sabotage their rivals. Arboreal cybercrime aside, scientists are still debating why plants seem to behave in such an altruistic way. The hidden network creates a thriving community between individuals. When you're next in Woodland, you might like to think of trees as part of a big superorganism, chatting and swapping information and food under your feet. How many of you have ever heard or read any of those uh, more recent findings? It's fascinating, right? This idea that, that the world around us, in particular forests, are, are deeply connected in ways that we wouldn't first perceive, that we can't even see. Even if you were to dig up the earth, you wouldn't notice this sort of network that's in place. But I'd venture to say that even more than this wood-wide web they've just described, that our lives as human beings, our lives in relationship with one another, are deeply enmeshed, deeply connected, deeply overlapping, even in ways that we often fail to perceive. And sometimes those connections are for good, sometimes for not. But they're connections that we would do well to pay attention to. One of the challenges, though, I think, in this particular time and place in which we live is that we tend to prize the ego. We, we live in a culture that prizes the individual, that focuses on the sense of me. But one of the ironies and one of the outcomes of this great celebration of individualism is that we slowly denigrate those connections we have with one another. And we now live in one of the loneliest periods in human history. By placing our focus on each individual person, or to use the metaphor we've just looked at, on each individual tree, we lose sight of the forest around us, and we lose sight of our place in it. We lose sight of just how deeply and purposefully we've been created to exist for and with one another. And so while we might hear about the values of community in our towns and villages and schools, I would suggest that if we take a, a quick look at the word of God, that, that that idea of community and unity is even more necessary, even more essential and central to the reality that's taking root here within the church. The scriptures are clear that within this family, God has called the many 
all the different individual lives that he's created, he's called them to become one. He's called us to be a people bound together in a living reality. And whether we see it or not, that living reality is is focused in and around and through the person of Jesus Christ, who the scriptures say has given his own life to make us one, to connect us to himself, to bring us to be in Christ. So I'd again invite you to open to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And as we look into that text, I want us to consider what what that unity, what that, that reality that may be unseen or unfelt at times, what that means for us together in the life that we share as, as the family of God today. Let me pray for us, and then we'll begin reading the passage. Jesus, thank you that you not only have created and given us life, but you have purposefully set our lives into contact with one another, Lord, even more importantly, you've set our lives into contact with you, our creator, our redeemer. Because of your mercy and grace, we are now no longer dead, solitary, alienated, isolated, but we are alive in you. We have the spirit of the living God dwelling in us. Lord, help us this morning especially to see the way that spirit unites us to you and to one another. May the words of my mouth now as I teach, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm going to read all six verses here, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and then I'm going to come back and look at each individual section. This is what Paul writes. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the beginning to chapter 4 in the book of Ephesians. And so between now and the start of the Lenten season in a couple months, we're going to try to conclude our study of this book. We'll be looking at chapters 4, 5, and 6. But today we stand at the halfway point in Paul's letter. We've got three chapters behind us and three chapters yet to go. And the first half of the book of Ephesians was Paul's best attempt to, to give us the language of our identity as a family. Right? Paul, Paul speaks about our inheritance there. Paul speaks about all that Christ has accomplished, all that he desires to accomplish in bringing together this new people of God. 
So that's where we were this fall, chapters 1 through 3. And now in chapters 4 through 6, Paul's going to take that great foundation that he's laid out. And he's going to seek to move us towards practice and application. He wants to sketch out, well, if that is who Christ is, if that's what he's done and we're joined to him, then then what does that mean for the way we live with one another? And so Paul begins the first half of this letter in verse 1 with these words we've just heard. As a prisoner for the Lord, sorry, I jumped ahead here. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul says to be part of this church, to be in Christ, is to have received a calling. And that that word calling appears several times in Ephesians. It appears numerous times throughout the New Testament. And in fact, the very word the New Testament uses for church is ekklesia. It's taken from the Greek verb to be called. The church is a gathering of called ones. The church is those who have been called out. The church is those who have been called together to Christ. And so as Paul begins chapter 4, he wants to remind us that we are called. Partly because he, he wants us both to think about where we're headed in this letter, but also to think about where we've just come from. Paul says, in in these next three chapters, he doesn't use that language, but he's preparing us for that. He says, I want to focus on a new way of living. He says, I want you to live lives that are worthy of Christ. And he says that that the new way of living to which we're called, we, we need to explore, we need to unpack. That will take most of these next three chapters to explore. But before we do that, we need to remember our foundation. That the way we live is is rooted in, is based upon a calling that we have received in Jesus Christ. So we need to know what that life in Christ looks like. We need to think back to what he's just said in chapters 1 through 3 so that we can begin to explore its practical ramifications for us. And so... In order to move into chapter 4, let me briefly summarize some of where we've just been in chapters 1 through 3. Let me refresh your memory of what Paul has told us there. Back in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Paul summarizes his prayer for the church in this way. He says, I pray for you that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. The start of that letter, Paul prays that we might know the hope and the power and the identity to which we have been called in Jesus Christ, that our eyes could see what we cannot cannot typically see in our everyday lives, that we would have perception of an of a unusual, supernatural sort to know that calling. And if we go through chapters 1, 2, and 3, let me just sort of summarize some of the things Paul says there. He says, in Jesus Christ, you and I are now called God's sons and daughters. He uses the language of adoption. 
He says we're called God's chosen people. God calls us his inheritance, the thing that he desires more than anything else in his creation. Paul says in Jesus Christ, we have now been called out of death and we've been joined to resurrection life. That's part of our calling. He says that our calling is that in being joined to Jesus Christ in his life, God is now making us his masterpiece. He's reforming, he's recreating us in a new way. He says that that masterpiece is like a temple of living stones being fashioned together so that God's spirit might dwell in it. Paul says that that Christ has taken those who were far away and those who were near. He's taken Jew and Gentile and man and woman and, and slave and free person and he's joined them together in this one new family, the body of Jesus Christ. This is the calling we have received. And so here at the start of chapter 4, Paul says, that is the calling you have been given. Now live it. Now be worthy of it. And the word worthy there in Greek is the word axios. It, it means to be congruent. It means to, 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 be, to bear a, a reflection of, to be images of, of that calling. Let your in Christness be mirrored into every word, into every action, into every relationship of which you are a part. Because the Spirit of the living God now makes his home in you. And so with that calling in mind, we move into verses 2 and 3, where Paul begins to give us some concrete descriptors of, of what that worthiness, what that, that living out this call looks like. Let me read those again, verses 2 and 3. Paul says, Be completely humble then and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. At the core of this calling at the core of this new identity is the idea that we are now God's family members. That we live in his household, that we are now his children, that we, are, we stand to, to gain his inheritance. So we have to ask, well, practically speaking then, what does it look like then to be part of that family? What does that family value? How does it operate with one another? And sometimes we have to separate the values of this family from the values that, that operate in the world around us. This was a, a challenge for the recipients of this letter. As, as historian John Dixon writes, in the ancient world, uppermost in a father's mind, a father, a, a leader of a household's mind, was how he could ensure that his children would bring honor to that family. This was preeminent in Greek and Roman households. And so typically that meant if you were the father or you were part of the, the leadership of a household, you looked for every way possible for your children to make noteworthy accomplishments. Right? You looked for ways to help advance them through the various social strata around, in, the, in the world around you. And, and most of all, you wanted to help them avoid failure 
at all costs. Those are ancient values. They're probably not terribly different than what most of of us value and desire for our children. We want them to succeed. We want them to to demonstrate their worth in the world around us. If you go to a sporting event, you can see this right in the behavior of parents on the sidelines. There's a strong desire for honor. But if that's sort of the prototypical value of the household, Paul says here in verse 2 that our father, the one who has joined us to his family, the family of God, has a different set of virtues and values that honor his family name. And uppermost in his mind is that he might have children and might have a household that is completely humble and gentle, that is patient, that bears with one another in love in order that there might be peace in that household. In short, in God's household, what's prized above all else is that he might have children who put the interests of one another ahead of themselves. And we might ask, well, why are these the virtues and values of God's family? Well, I think we don't have to look too far into the life of Jesus himself to see that God's own son reflects these very values and virtues and characteristics. What is the list in Ephesians 4, 2, and 3 but a description of the life we encounter in Jesus Christ described in the gospel record? Who is Jesus but one who was in the very nature, the honor and and glorious God himself, but who came choosing to live among us as a servant? Who was Jesus but but the one who took his great privilege as as the God in, in human flesh, God making himself human flesh? He took that and he set it aside. Philippians chapter 2 says he he humbled himself instead and chose death, chose to die on a cross in order to make us part of his family. Right? The values we see here are the values of Christ-likeness. They're the values that would shape us into his image, into his character. But what strikes me about this list, things like humility and patience and forbearance and love, is that they require from me a set of relational muscles I don't automatically use. You can't just sort of catch these attitudes over time. They require choice. They require prayer. They require a greater sense of God's love growing up within us. And if you think about the words listed on that screen, probably most of us are pretty good at, at putting on a certain kind of facade when we're in our public lives. Right? Most of us probably don't struggle to demonstrate the proper measure of humility when we're, we're out in public or patience with someone in a line behind us. But when we're among family members, when we're among the people we are called to love most fully and completely, it's then that, that these things begin to fall apart. 
have to confess that, that patience is an area I struggle routinely with. And it's not out there. It's not with, with my life as a pastor or in the public. It's, it's with my family. It's with the people God has called me to love and to serve day in and day out. And because it's a struggle, sometimes it's easy just to want to, to dismiss that struggle or to, to give up. It's easy just to go about proving my point or, or losing my temper or quietly accommodating myself and then just kind of gently excusing that as, as part of my own pride and irritability. It's just part of human nature, sometimes we say. But Paul says if we are to be part of the family, the body of Jesus Christ, then we must live in a different way. When we go about accommodating ourselves, when we set aside this list of family values, there is a cost to our relationships. If we choose to forego allowing the Spirit of God to grow us and discipline us in these things, then the intimacy and trust in our households diminish as well. The amount of stress in our relationship begins to amplify And and our relationships break down and they start to fracture where we fail to prize Christ-likeness, humility, patience, forbearance, and love. There's a cost to setting them aside, but on the other hand, when we humble ourselves, when we choose to, to bring ourselves before the feet of Christ and say, Lord, teach me these things, There is a real power and beauty we discover in these practices. It's beautiful when we choose or when we see another person around us choose to make themselves second instead of first. You could try that out sometime this coming week. When When you hit a moment, maybe it's at home, maybe it's in your workplace, where you notice there is discouragement, you notice the stress starting to sort of ramp up in that moment. Think about whether there's a way to place yourself second in that setting, to choose intentionally to become a servant, to become as Christ would be. And if we make that choice, if we utter that that prayer in that moment, Lord, help me to be as you would be here. There's a chance that we might see the quiet beauty that humility carries with it. We might see a demonstration of patience breathe life into a wounded place. We might get to witness how forbearance keeps love alive instead of diminishing it. In choosing that attitude, we might begin to see the image of Jesus Christ being formed, and beginning to flourish in us. In addition to becoming like Jesus Christ in the practice of these things, verse 3 also tells us that as we prize them, as we live together into these things, it preserves and it protects our unity. It serves as the bond, as as the thing that pulls us together in the power of the Spirit so that we might remain one. These attitudes preserve that oneness. They strengthen it through the power of Jesus' Spirit in us. And as we see 
in the last few verses of our passage this morning, the unity and the oneness of the church is something that God takes very, very seriously. Look with me at verses 4, 5, and 6. Paul says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all and through all. I think the logic at work here is actually pretty simple. Paul says, if God himself is one, he can't be broken into pieces. You can't divide God up into parts. Therefore, if we have now been joined to God, neither can we. We can't be torn apart. We can't be divided. We are now in him. We we share in his unity and oneness. So he says, there's only one body you and I belong to. There's only one spirit living in us. There's only one hope to which all of us have been called. There's only one Lord who is our head. There's only one faith which we have received and believed in together. There's only one baptism that that allows us to enter into this one family. God has chosen to make us one. And while it's easier, easier for us to see our separateness, it's easier for us to, to function out of our individuality, Paul wants to challenge us here that when we come into this space, when we are the body of Jesus Christ, we need to, to see ourselves through the lens of unity, of oneness, not individuality. Because Christ dwells in you And Christ dwells in me. That means that our lives are now inseparably bound up together. Kind of like that illustration at the beginning of the message this morning. Like those trees in the forest. Our roots have been networked and brought together and and linked up. Even in ways that we don't always perceive. But God has called us to do that so that we might do life. Share life together with each other. Not just here on Sunday morning, but but in our households, in the lives we live with one another, in in the space of every day. And we're called to share in life together so that that others might also be brought into that unity. I think it's interesting that the scriptures often speak of both the marriage relationship and the relationship of the church in, in similar ways. When Jesus was asked about the relationship between a husband and wife, he said that God did this in order that that the two might become one, right? One flesh out of two. And Jesus went on in in that teaching to say that where God brings man and woman together into one flesh, what God has joined together, let no one separate. In the same way, The scriptures say that Christ has taken many bodies, many individuals, and he's joined them into one new flesh. So that your good is now my good. So that your wounds are now my wounds. That God has joined us together on purpose. 
And whatever God has called together, we must endeavor not to separate. In fact, we must endeavor to cherish and to serve and to demonstrate patience toward and forbearance and love for this new body Christ has given us. And so today, as we conclude our time of worship together, we have set before us, I think, the most powerful image of what that unity and oneness looks like. At the table of Jesus Christ, we we have a meal that has been prepared because Jesus Christ exercised humility and patience and forbearance and love for us. And he chose to give us his very body in order that we might be secured to him and to know his peace.